Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm here today with uh, Dan Norton, an objectivist, subscribes to Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, and uh, I myself am not an objectivist. Is there anything you want to start off with? I have a YouTube channel. If you want to check out my work, it's at youtube.com slash dannorton1, or you can also search for Selfishness Project. That's an easy way to find it. Oh, I'm hearing an echo because I have the uh, YouTube open in the other window. So let me uh, turn that, mute that for a second, just to hold on for a sec. Okay, ready to go. Yeah, so I've got a YouTube channel for which I use to advance Ayn Rand's ideas. I have lots of discussions and debates with people. So if anyone is out there who is also interested in having a discussion or debate, feel free to get in touch with me and maybe we can set something up. Great. Okay. Well, um, with that in mind, I figured we could just jump in. So I've watched a bit of your content before, um, but I thought maybe selfishness in general. That's why I think it's. Okay. Right now it's selfish for me to put on my sunglasses because it's very bright out here. So uh, let me do that. No worries. Or self-interested. So you asked for the case for selfishness. Um, so first of all, I want to say that Ayn Rand has a distinctive meaning that she attaches to that word. So conventionally, selfishness means being a rude jerk, um, lying, cheating, stealing to get your way, stepping over others, violating other people's rights. But she rejects all of that. Her understanding of selfishness is simply being concerned with your own interest. And she thinks it's, it's good and proper to be concerned with your own interests. You, it, there's no reason for you to sacrifice yourself like Mother Teresa and live your life for the sake of others. Uh, she thinks everyone should pursue his or her own self-interest without sacrificing other people, without violating their rights by initiating force that gets into her political philosophy. Rather, people should interact as traders, trading value for value, rather than interacting as parasite and host where one person just leeches off the others through uh, taxation, for instance, or through slavery, there are different forms it can take. Rather, she thinks everyone should um, support himself, but you, you can, of course, uh, do that better if you work with others cooperatively rather than coercively. And that's one of the great benefits of society. If it's, if it's put together in the right way, if people interact the right way together, it can be a great benefit to yourself. So it, it's in your self-interest. Uh, to have a society under certain conditions. Um, and we can get more into that if you'd like. Now, some people have said maybe she should have used a different term instead of selfishness, since it does have this conventional meaning. And maybe you could, uh, we could have an argument about that. But setting aside the label she uses, I think the idea behind the label, namely that you should pursue your own interests, do what's best for yourself, is a good idea. And I'm happy to talk more about that. Sure. So maybe to clarify, first of all, I also agree that you should generally pursue your own self-interest. I just think that you should also pursue other people's interest. So would Ayn Rand's philosophy imply that you should exclusively, um, as long as you're not violating what she could But other than that, you have no obligation to else. The only obligations you have ultimately are, are founded in obligations to yourself. So you might have an obligation to children, your own children, not other people's children, if you're a parent. 
but she would ground that in your own self-interest. So it's in your self-interest to take care of a child. You shouldn't have a child in the first place, um, you know, taking a step back. You should only have a child if you think it's going to enhance your own life in some way. Yeah, so... There's no duty to fully multiply. <laughs> but if you are going to have a child, then I think you, you selfishly or self-interestedly take on that obligation. Yeah, so it seems to me that there are at least some cases where it's very clear that we have an obligation to others, for example, uh, for non-self-interested reasons. For example, let's say that somebody, uh, for example, somebody's drowning and we could at very little cost to ourselves wait for water to save. It seems that even if for some reason you really would not rather do that, you still have an obligation to go save them because it's a little cost to you saving their life. Okay, I, I don't see it that way. I think it is in your own self-interest to live in the kind of world where people will do things like save save someone from dying at little cost to themselves. Um, I, I think it would be a very malevolent, um, hostile, cynical, nasty kind of world to live in if you didn't uh, bother lifting a finger to help someone else uh, who's drowning when it would cost very little to yourself. And I, I think I would feel, I would feel guilty if, if I just uh, ignored that person. So I, I think it actually is in my self-interest. It's, it's good for my own mental state and sense of the, the world to, to um, uh, have benevolence towards others. Now, this doesn't mean I'm going to fly around the world trying to find people who are drowning. But if I'm walking by and I happen to see one who... I could easily save, then yeah, I'm going to do that. And I, I think it is in my self-interest to do that as well as that person's interest. Sure, so I, I think, think there's a harmony of interests. Yeah. yeah. I think that you made two appeals there and I think neither one is really going to work because the first one you made an appeal to wanting to live in society that, but that seems to assume that my saving this child, for example, is going to contribute to living in a society where everybody saves children. But we can imagine there are plenty of cases where like, you know, it's the middle of the night. If the child drowns, nobody find out that I could have saved them. And so my saving them or not saving them is not going to meaningfully And then you also uh, appealed to this sort of uh, sense of guilt that I'm going to be avoiding by saving the child. But for sure, there are some people who might be psychopathic or just care very little about other people. And so they might think that it's not their obligation to save the child and they might not feel guilt afterwards. For those types of people, would you say that, in fact, they have no obligation to the child and it might be morally right for them to ignore the child because there is some small cost to them? Okay, I'm, I'm just taking some notes here. That's why I'm looking down. So you, I, I think you raised two basic cases. So one was the case where no one else is going to know. So it's the middle of the night and someone is drowning. And then the other case was, aren't there some people, maybe psychopaths, who don't experience any guilt uh what do i have to say about them uh so i guess i'll take those in in the order uh, i just gave them so i don't think it's primarily about what other people know whether or not anyone else finds out or not that i saved this person i think i myself would suffer bad consequences if if i didn't lift a finger to to help someone who who is drowning. So it doesn't really have anything to do with, or at least doesn't primarily have anything to do with what other people's attitude toward this action is going to be. And we could talk more about that if you like, but 
Um, I think it is primarily uh, for the agent himself uh, that it matters. Now, with the um, psychopath case, this often comes up in my debates. People will raise, well, what if, what if there's some psychopaths? And my my answer to that is it doesn't really matter. It's I think it's kind of a, a irrelevant issue in ethics. I think the purpose of ethics is to g give guidance to normal human beings who are not psychopaths and give them uh, tools for how to live their own lives and be happy. And if there are some freak cases, uh, which is, um, you know, they're they're wired wrong or something. I don't know if this is even possible, but assuming it is, um, I don't think it really matters that these people might have to act in a different way to pursue their own interests. Sure. So, but first of all, um, the reason I brought up the middle of the night case was just because you had made an appeal to living in a society that is structured a certain sort of way. And so I wanted to make clear that I think that that appeal wasn't going to work in all cases. Now, if the thrust of the appeal isn't about that and it's about your guilt and you want to talk about psychopaths, so I'm familiar with some of your debates where we've talked about this. But I think that um, there's going to be a problem here because I'm asking a deeper question than what's like the average advisable action for a person to do. I'm asking what does it mean for something to be good or in virtue of what is something good, right? So if your moral philosophy says that it is just good to pursue your own self-interest, then you can't carve out exceptions for say, people like um, psychopaths because you're saying that what it is to be good is to follow one's self-interest. Rather, it seems like you're appealing to something deeper, right? Like maybe something about social harmony or something. And in that case, then we should discuss that directly, right? Because you can't be identifying the good with per pursuing one's own self-interest if there are cases where pursuing one's own self-interest is not the good. Okay, I, I'm not taking the good to be something other than pursuing your own interest. But what I am saying is that it might take different forms for different people, in particular for psychopaths versus normal human, be human beings. So what pursuing your own interest looks like in practice, if you're a psychopath, might involve killing other people, for example. Uh, if you're a normal person, I think your self-interest does not involve killing other people, unless it's in self-defense, and you have to do that. Um, and it also, if you're a normal person, your self-interest involves locking up in jail or maybe executing people who are psychopaths and who, whose only way of surviving is to, is to kill other people. So it, it is, I, I think, but whatever kind of being you are, I think it is in proper, it is good for that kind of being to pursue what it is in, in its self-interest. Right. So then it seems that you would be susceptible to the reductio that a, that under Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy, what a psychopath ought do is a psychopath ought not save a drowning child, because in their case, that's going to be maximizing their own happiness, right? I don't see that as a reductio. I see it as kind of irrelevant to ethics because I, I don't think the purpose of ethics is to get every last person who has human DNA to act in a certain way. I think the pr purpose of ethics is to give normal human beings guidance in how to live their lives. Right. So this is why I was talking about uh, a further level of good, right? Because to talk about um, sort of practical advice for people in their lives, we have to first identify what are goals worth pursuing. And that seems to me to be a major reductio to a position if you say that there are some group of people for which uh, either ignoring drowning children or if they're particularly malevolent, killing children is going to be good, right? 
because I think that any position about morality should at least ascribe to some basic things that killing children for fun isn't good um, under my view. And so it seems that if there are some people for whom killing children for fun is good, that's going to be a reason to deny um, that a moral philosophy is true. If I follow you, um, I, I don't think that it sounds like maybe you have a kind of, um, I don't know, dogmatic conception where it's like, uh, regardless of context, regardless of the nature of the thing, you thou shalt act in such and such a way. Um, and that's, that's not my or Rand's approach to ethics. The proper way to approach ethics is to do so on the foundation of facts about the nature of the beings who are acting. There, there's no commandments that say you you have to like categorical imperatives are sometimes called in um, to use Kantian terminology. Thou shalt act in such a way, such a way, no matter what, regardless of the consequences. No, that's that's not the right approach to ethics uh, on Rand's view, but it sounds like maybe you hold something like that. So, and we could talk about that if you want. Sure, I, I'm actually not a deontologist myself, but I do think that uh, the problem with the philosophy that you're espousing is that if you're going to be giving advice to people, and so it seems to me that your position is you don't want to make normal people. Yeah, you don't want to be making some universal identification of something with the good. Because you think that we should just give advice, give advice to normal people that works in the vast majority of cases. But I would just ask, in virtue of what is that advice good? And in other words, if there is not something that you can identify with the good all of the time, then um, what makes you think that somebody pursuing their own self-interest is a good thing, even in the vast majority of cases? Maybe I should bring in the term pleasure here, because I think that is what the concept of the good ultimately is grounded on so if we didn't have any pleasure uh like you get from eating food or um you know getting a massage you know just sensory pleasure being the most basic forms of pleasure there are other more complicated types of pleasure which we call might call intellectual pleasures um but just take basic sensory pleasures um which even animals plausibly have I think that's the foundation from which we get our concept of the good. And if we didn't have pleasures or pains to take the foundation of the concept of bad, um, we wouldn't have any basis. It would be entirely arbitrary, I think, what, uh, what good and bad is. But I think nature is just such that we do experience pleasure in response to certain stimuli and pain in response to other stimuli. And we can, as we uh, develop, we can find um, more and less good ways to, or more and less effective ways to achieve those. And we, we have to learn to distinguish between short run pleasures and long run pleasures. For instance, going to the dentist might be painful in the short run, but in the long run, uh, you actually end up feeling more pleasure um, because if you don't get your tooth drilled or whatever your tooth will decay and it'll cause lots of pain and so in the long run you're actually going to experience more pleasure and happiness as a result of having some short-run pain um but in any case i think these experiences of pleasure and pain are what ultimately grounds 
a concept, an objective concept of good and bad. Sure. So I agree. I'm I'm utilitarian, so I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that uh, pleasure and pain is what fundamentally matters. But then it seems that if I can show you that there's a better way of maximizing pleasure than just each individual pursuing their own pleasure, then you would be forced to accept that position because that position actually better maximizes what you truly care about, which is pleasure and pain. But when I say that, I mean one's own. So I don't mean pleasure and pain in the universe. So I think uh, inherent in the idea of pleasure, or at least when you first get it, is that it's your pleasure. Now, it's kind of that was implicit when I was discussing pleasure and pain a, a minute ago. But unlike the utilitarian who just wants to maximize pleasure and pain in the universe at large, I think the proper goal, as an, as an egoist, I think the proper goal is to pursue your own pleasure or to, to use a, another related term, happiness. Rand says that happiness is the proper purpose or the highest moral purpose in one's life. I think one's own pleasure or happiness is properly the goal. Sure. So you said earlier that you think that um, morality is fundamentally based on pleasure and pain and that it wouldn't make sense to have concepts like good and bad without pain and pleasure. But if you're using pleasure to only mean your own pleasure, then that just seems pretty clearly wrong. Like, even if I don't have distinct pleasurable or painful experiences as a result of a choice, it still seems that I can very coherently label that choice right or wrong based on whether or not it brings pleasure or pain to other people. So why is it that other people's pleasure and pain should be systematically disregarded? I, I just don't, I, I, th this has come up also in some of my previous discussions with uh, one in particular, I know um, it came up in was my discussion with Professor Molyneux, who was my advisor in grad school. This is episode number 20 of the Selfishness Project on my YouTube channel, if anyone wants to check it out. So he, he tries to argue for this kind of uh, symmetry. Well, there's this You've got your pleasure, and this other guy over here has his pleasure or pain. Uh, why should you care more about one than the other? And I, I was kind of at a loss because I think this is—it's kind of uh, uh, self-evidence as to why I should care about my pleasure. <laughs> I just want to say, well, because it's mine. <laughs> why should I care about this other guy's pleasure? Um, now, maybe indirectly, maybe if this guy is my friend. And I want to. It gives me satisfaction and pleasure to see him doing well in life. Then I will. Then I might help him out. And I think that is reasonable. I think egoists um, have plenty of reason to care about friends, family, loved ones. They are these other people's are values to to them themselves. The egoists. So it is in their own interest to have other people doing well. Um, contrary to the um, stereotypical view of an egoist who only cares about his, himself doesn't give a damn about others now in a fundamental sense he, he only cares about himself but himself in a mature egoistic sense of the term involves other people's interests so he's not indifferent to what happens to others um but it, i mean to get to your question i i'm not we this might just be a place where we're going to reach a stalemate i don't know that there's anything i can say that would convince you that uh, you should care about your own interests uh, more than others. To me, it's just, uh, I don't know if I should say it's self-evident, but if not, it's at least close to self-evident. I'm not sure what I can say to someone who, who argues against that. 
Sure. So, I mean, I think descriptively, people probably care far more about their own experiences. But um, I think there's pretty clear philosophical arguments against just caring about your own experiences. For example, um, I so I think that overall, on the merits of both of the philosophies, we should look at which has worse reductios against it. And I take it that thinking that a psychopath who enjoys murdering children ought murder children is a strong reductio to your position. That isn't the, a reductio to my position because I think that children are likely to suffer a lot. So, for example, um, in that case, we could show that considering everybody's pleasure is just great to have more intuitive consequences and better fit our moral intuitions than only care about only, only caring about one's own pleasure. Well, I think you might be taking for granted uh, what uh, the what people's moral intuitions are. I, I don't even use that term. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm doubtful intuition is a proper way to um, approach ethical questions, I, although I know it's often done in uh, academic philosophy, but um, I, I'm skeptical of that methodology. For instance, I, I don't have the intuition quote, I, I, to, I, or I would just say I don't have the view uh, that it is a reductio to say psychopaths ought to kill children if they are wired such that uh, that's the only way they can get pleasure or happiness. I would add that I, I think it's it's kind of uh, it, it's uh, irrelevant to ethics, as I said before, because I don't think the point of ethics properly construed is to uh, give guidance to psychopaths. And I people so I don't really yeah I don't see this as a reductio of my view. Right. So again, uh, first of all. I think that I think that when you say things like X is self-evident, right? Like pleasure is good as self-evident, that that might be a rewording, but it seems to me that's like that's a lot like an appeal to intuition. So to me, that psychopaths ought not murder children for fun is also an appeal to intuition, but I also think it's self-evident in the same sense that pleasure is good as self-evident. But maybe another point to make here is that uh, we discussed this before, but I don't think that saying that Ayn Rand is not trying to give advice to psychopaths is going to get you out of this because the problem is that we're identifying the good with different things. So it will straightforwardly follow that in your case, it is good for a psychopath to do this. And it seems to me that there are enough psychopaths in the world that we would want a moral philosophy that doesn't give the wrong result here. Now, you can claim that you just don't have this intuition. Um, that's fine. I think the vast majority of the audience will find that um, psychopaths doing things like uh, committing rapes, committing murders, as long as they're not found out, is in some sense morally wrong. And so uh, would you say that anybody who would hold that position would not be able to hold objectivism? Um, would that, that position would be incompatible with holding objectivism? I think so. On my understanding of it, it seems like people who hold that view uh, have what Ayn Rand might call an intrinsicist view of the good, uh, which is basically uh, the Kantian categorical imp imperative sort of view that I was describing before, where regardless of something's nature, regardless of the context, uh, thou shalt do such and such, regardless of its effects, its consequences on the agent. And I think that's, I think that's an, a mis mistaken view of ethics, a religious kind of view although many people hold it, even ones who are nominally not religious. 
so yeah, it, I think it is uh, uh, probably a minority view. Um, but Ayn Rand is a radical. She, she's challenging um, fundamentally the way people have thought about ethics for hundreds or thousands of years. Sure. So um, first of all, to be clear, I'm not a deontologist. So I, again, I'm utilitarian. Well, she maybe you don't think you are, but in some respects you are. Because oh, well, okay, if you're yeah, saying something you... should act in such and such a way, it's good to act regardless of the consequences and the not... effects on, on the agent, then how, how is that different from deontology? Right, because I'm not saying regardless of the consequences. I assume that children well, getting yeah. murdered, I assume that the children who would get murdered, who would uh, not, who drowned as a result, um, are going to experience a large amount of disutility. And <clears throat> I think that there's, it's almost inconceivable that there would be a psychopath who would enjoy something enough that they would experience enough utility to outweigh that. So I'm making sort of an empirical prediction that murdering children for fun is not utility generating on net, right? So I'm not talking about regardless of the consequences. But Well, I'm, you are talking about regardless of the consequences on the agent himself, or at least you're, you're uh, treating them as those consequences as... Well, as a utilitarian, maybe this is what this is what you're doing. You're you're not privileging the consequences on the agent himself any more than any other consequences in the universe. So maybe it's it's not a deontological view for that reason. But I, I would say it's I would still object to it on the grounds that you're you're treating yourself uh, uh, as a non-privileged being. Yeah. So. Uh, um, yeah, I, I agree to that. I think that that's a fair characterization of my position. And I realize you might have hit bedrock because if you don't have the intuition that it's wrong for psychopaths who really enjoy murdering children to murder children, then uh, I don't think I can appeal to any, anything further. But I would say that um, I wonder what appeal the objectivist position would have to the average person who I do think has that intuition. Well, I think uh, anyone should recognize that uh, for themselves, what's good is not, if they're normal, uh, if they're not psychopaths, uh, what's good is not to kill children and rather it's to um, respect other people's rights. Uh, that's, so I would want to make that case rather than uh, having a discussion about psychopaths, which I, I, I really think are irrelevant to morality. Um, so I, I don't think you to, to appeal to the average person and Ayn Rand has certainly appealed to many people. I mean, she, uh, there's a large, I mean, in, in the, in the entire world, it's, it's a small minority, but you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands. I, I don't know how many people have, have, um, read her works and found them very compelling and inspiring. Um, so I, I don't think there's some insuperable, uh, problem with uh, convincing people uh, of her view. And, you know, I'm trying to do my part and uh, getting people to think about things a little differently. But I, there's nothing, I mean, I'm, I'm one of them. I, I'm one who has uh, been exposed to her works and found them compelling. And if someone raises something like psychopaths, I, I just don't see that as, as uh, some reason I shouldn't adopt her view. So, Maybe we should talk more about the methodological question then, because if you don't think that these sorts of counterexamples, which I find pretty unintuitive at least, are counterexamples against the view, then what do you think it is that we should try to appeal to in making an ethical theory? 
what should we appeal to 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 make an ethical theory or to um to advocate for an ethical theory what what makes an ethical theory better than another ethical theory on your view well ultimately it's uh i i think it's more consistent with the facts and and um but what facts do you it think makes sense what facts is utilitarianism inconsistent with well the um there are probably some uh thought experiments like well we we talked a little before at least uh in an abstract kind of way about how under utilitarianism you should privilege your yourself no more than anything else in the universe that experiences pleasure or pain. So maybe there are some thought experiments that could be done and maybe more realistic ones than I'm about to give. But one that just occurred to me is let's say that you could um, uh, increase the, the net utility in the universe uh, by killing yourself. I guess on a utilitarian view, you should just kill yourself. <laughs> Um, despite the fact that um, you could alternatively, if you didn't accept the utilitarian view, have a life of happiness for right. yourself. Now, is it is it intuitive or is it consistent with um, the facts that you you should? Is it more consistent with your facts that you should kill yourself rather than not? It's it's not clear to me that it is. So I, I, I don't know what fact you're appealing to about whether or not I should kill myself. It sounds like you're appealing to my intuitions about whether or not I should kill myself. But what, what fact of the matter are you going to point to to say that utilitarianism is inconsistent with that? Uh, I, I don't know that um, putting it as consistent with the facts is the um, best way to put it. Best way to put it. I mean... I suspect ultimately it comes to that, but I don't know that I've uh, clearly made the connection. I, but maybe I can uh, come up with a better way to put it. So uh, I guess it seems to me a, a fact that my own pleasure is good and the fundamentally the only thing that matters and anything else that matters is only matters because it somehow redounds to my own pleasure. It has some kind of impact direct or indirect on my own pleasure. And right. maybe this is just the, the kind of this self-evident bedrock of my view. And I'm calling that a fact. But then you're just, uh, you're just straightforwardly begging the question against utilitarianism, right? because they would just deny that that bedrock is true. Well, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that it's begging the question. I mean, it's maybe it's a, a foundation or an axiom of my view, but you've got to start somewhere. I don't, I don't think every axiom is question begging. Right. Uh, right. I, I agree. But the difference is that, so maybe something that would help is when I'm thinking about what a good moral theory is, I try to think about 
what fits my intuition about specific cases, what fits my intuition about general things that matter, those types of things. So I'm asking you, what what is there to recommend the objectivist moral theory? And the, if the best you can do is to just directly appeal to the same moral theory and say, you just take that as bedrock, then of course, there's nothing that's going to appeal. There's there's no argumentative force that's going to move anybody else um, in the debate, much less me, who just has a different sort of foundation for my moral beliefs. Yeah, so the, I mean, I think the the foundation is given by nature. I mean, it's it's by nature that we experience pleasure and pain. And I think those experiences... Uh, which we don't choose. I mean, that's we don't project that onto reality. It's just the way we are. That's what provides the foundation for morality. Uh, so, I mean, if someone doesn't accept that, it seems to me that they're somehow denying that self-evident foundation of morality. And um, I, I don't think that we should treat our intuitions, what you're calling intuitions, as fundamental and everything has to um cohere with those i mean for one thing people have different intuitions um and i think that the the sorts of things you're talking about having intuitions about like what should you do if you see someone drowning um those aren't fundamental epistemologically i think like if if a if an infant sees somebody uh thrashing around in a pool he's not going to have any response at all to that because he doesn't know how to evaluate what's going on it would just be meaningless uh to him but that infant does have pleasure and pain so that's something more fundamental i think than what what should be the appropriate response in this scenario which requires uh, more complex cognition right processing Right, but an infant also probably doesn't really understand what it means to explain a moral theory. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure why you would appeal to these sort of attitudes of an infant, because an infant's also not going to be able to uh, be an objectivist, because probably they don't have the language faculties necessary. I mean, in either case, it just seems to me that if the best you can do uh, to to give an argument for objectivism is to appeal that it's an obvious fact, then I'm not sure why anybody who doesn't, who isn't already an objectivist um, should change to being an objectivist because of your arguments. Well, the, uh, well, just to go back to the infant for a second, I, I'm not appealing to the attitudes of the infant. It was more the experiences, just the, the brute experiences that it experiences of pleasure and pain. And the point of bringing in the infant is, is that it's clear in that case that, you know, the cognition hasn't developed yet, yet he has this valenced experience of pleasure and pain, which, you know, we continue to have as we grow up and mature, but we get more complicated things as well. But the foundation, the most primitive um, kind of good, good and bad we have any experience of, I think is pleasure and pain. So I think that is what provides a non-arbitrary uh, foundation on which you can construct a moral theory. Um, now, as to how I would convince other people of it, I think p- part of it is uh, getting just normal people who aren't psychopaths to um, see that it's 
in their interest to act in a certain way, namely respecting other people's rights, for instance, or being honest and not lying, even if you can get away with it, for instance, I find that that's, that's itself controversial, setting aside psychopaths just to get normal people um, to accept such things. So uh, I think having discussions about that kind of issue um, is one way to get uh, what I'm calling normal people, non-psychopaths on board. I mean, that's challenge enough, I think, setting aside the psychopath issue. Sure. So if you think that what if you think that maybe the ground of objectivism is the fact that very that one of the first experiences that we have is something like pleasure is plain, pleasure is good and pain is bad then it seems that i can equally appeal to that in fact it seems to me reasonable that probably uh infants very early on before they even develop a really accurate conception of self have this idea that they seek pleasure and they avoid pain so I don't see why you can appeal to that to say that only your own pleasure matters. It seems to me that maybe the most foundational concept is that pleasure matters, period. And then the most straightforward uh, moral theory based on that would be that everyone's pleasure matters equally. You think the most straightforward thing to conclude is that pleasure matters, period? Yeah, well, if you're going to, if you're going to appeal to the first experiences that people have, the most basic moral impulses that people have, then they can have moral impulses about pleasure and pain before they even have moral impulses about who they are. So I don't know how you can appeal to impulse about who they are if what you care about is the most early on, most developmentally simple moral concepts. Well, I think implicit in their experience of pleasure, which you might put into words, which an infant doesn't have yet, but if you could put into words what an infant is experiencing, you might say something like pleasure matters or pleasure is good. But if we expand that and unpack more, what I, what I think is implicit in that experience is that this pleasure that I'm experiencing is good. My pleasure is good. So I, I think egoism is implicit in a, in a way in, in the experience that pleasure is good. I don't think it's just an indifferent pleasure is good period, regardless of who is experiencing it. I don't think that is implicit well, in, so uh, in infant's pleasure. I don't, I don't think that that's it. I don't think that that's a fair characterization of what's going on because um, of course, in your reinterpretation, what really matters to the infant is their own pleasure. But if we both agree that the most simple concept they probably have is that pleasure is good period. Now, if you want to do further expansion, well, we don't agree. We don't agree. That's the most. If by that you you mean some kind of non-assigned to an agent, yeah, pleasure. Well, so their their most basic experience, right, is probably pleasure is good. Do you disagree? I mean, if if they don't even have a conception of self yet, how can they have uh, this experience that my own pleasure is good if you if they don't even know what my own means? Well, I mean, there's. In some sense, they don't have a conception of themselves, but I think what they're experiencing when they have pleasure, they are having pleasure. I mean, it's it's their pleasure that they are experiencing. There, there's no abstract, disembodied, just pleasure um, that's neither theirs nor anyone's uh, that is being experienced. So we're kind of we we have to use 
language to kind of conceptually tease apart what's going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when, when we say they experience pleasure. Right. So two things are going on here. The first one is what's the infant's direct experience? And the infant's direct experience can't have to do with a sense of self because they don't have a sense of self. So what you're saying well, is, well, I, so, I don't know. Well, right, right. So to be clear, what you're doing is you're saying, looking externally, what does it look like is going on? And it looks like they're valuing their own pleasure. And that's true. But what's something else that's going on looking externally? Well, they're valuing their own pleasure right now, right? They're acting in such a way as to maximize, um, as to make the decision that immediately maximizes their pleasure. So if you're going to appeal to this sort of externalist view of what they're doing, then I could just as easily say that all that matters is my own pleasure right now, as opposed to my own pleasure in general. Well, the um, I think maybe uh, maybe in a way that's true. However, <laughs> I think as you grow up, you learn that what impacts your own pleasure right now is things that you will do tomorrow. Like this is where the dentist example comes in. I mean, if something never had an impact on your on yourself uh, right now at any given now, maybe the now that you'll get impacted in terms of your pleasure is the now of tomorrow. And when that time comes, you know, if you hadn't done certain things like go to the dentist, your pleasure at that now is, it might not be pleasure at all. It might be pain. So I don't think that, I mean, if you, if you put it that way, all that matters is my pleasure right now. You might think this is, that implies uh, some kind of hedonistic view where um, the hedonism means just being a whim worshiper to use a term Rand sometimes uses where you just do whatever you feel like in the moment without regard for consequences. But it's, you know, a big part of her view that, to actually achieve your self-interest, you have to cons consider the long-run consequences. And if you don't, you'll have a lot of nows uh, that are unpleasant and suboptimal. Right. So, again, I'm going to agree with you, but I don't think that you can reasonably now appeal to what people learn at later stages of development because people at later stages of development also might learn that other people's pleasure matters too. So they might... Uh, develop new moral concepts such as the pleasure of my friends matters and then eventually they might develop this moral concept that global pleasure matters even if I never find out about it, right? So you can't have it both ways. You can't both say that your concept is more basic and then when I show that that's false, turn and say that actually upon development your concept is more intuitive when upon development there are at least as many people who are utilitarians um, compared to objectivists, right? Well, I, I think um, for one thing, I mean, none don't matter here. I mean, I think the majority of people can very well have the wrong view. Um, so truth isn't determined by numbers. I think most people probably believe in God, but I think that's wrong. I'm an atheist. Um, but as for uh, how an individual develops, I think you you do learn as you grow up that there are other beings in the world out there who are like you to whom pleasure also matters to them and pain matters to them. But I, I don't think once you learn this, that means you should all of a sudden uh, unprivilege yourself and think that other things should now matter to you, irrespective of their effects on you, irrespective of their effects on your pleasure or pain, your happiness or your suffering. Um, you just learn that other people are also in that position 
And um, in order to uh, optimize your own happiness, it behooves you to relate to them in a certain way, uh, in particular, in a voluntary way, other ways too, treating them justly. But I think that's that's part of it's just to treat them voluntarily as opposed to coercively. So you learn that, uh, well, I guess many people haven't learned this because uh, many people do support the initiation of force through uh, institutions like taxation and regulation. So part of what I I am trying to do is uh, change people's minds about that and and teach people uh, that it's actually better off for you and for everyone, if everyone respects other people's rights, that will ultimately redound to your own personal happiness the best. It is in your selfish, egoistic interest to respect rights. And many people don't accept that, but I, I think I think that's true. Right. So first of all, the reason that I appeal to the majority of people isn't that I think that the majority of people have some unique say in terms of what's moral. That's because you are making an appeal to what infants have as their first moral concepts, right? And so if we're both making appeals to the sort of average experience of most people, then it's clear that my philosophy, I think, is going to win out just based on the sort of empirical evidence of how many people accept objectivism versus accept utilitarianism. Now, again, the I think that you can make these sorts of statements about how people would all be better off if they accepted objectivism. But yet again, I don't think you've provided a satisfactory reason why anybody should accept objectivism because uh, it seems to because I don't think objectivism is intuitive. I don't think that you've given a clear picture of how objectivism follows from our simplest moral intuitions. And so I don't think there is any reason to adopt objectivism. Um, and in fact, I think there is ample reason not to adopt objectivism because to the extent that people care about morality being intuitive, and lots of people do, objectivism has highly unintuitive results. Okay, so the two points there. First, I'm not sure I really followed the first point about the um, the numbers here. I think you the, uh, numbers of people who are utilitarians versus objectivists. Maybe you can uh, restate that. I'm not yeah, sure I, I followed I don't, the logic. Of I don't that. think that's important. I, that that was okay. just appealing. If your view was that numbers matter, but if you don't think that numbers matter, and I don't think numbers matter, then we can ignore that. Okay, so the as for objectivism. Uh, not being or convincing because it's not uh, uh, it doesn't cohere with people's intuitions. Well, uh, this gets back to the uh, the talk about methodology and you know whether we should be using intuitions uh, as as our bedrock to to measure a moral theory as opposed to something like pleasure and pain, which I think is not a matter of intuition. I think these are just experiences nature gives to us. But I think what you're calling intuitions is more complicated and involves premises people have uh, adopted over time. For instance, um, altruistic premises. I, I think people have been heavily influenced by their uh, by the altruistic or self-sacrificial morality that has dominated Western or world culture for millennia and that impacts the the intuitions that they're going to have about what what should be done in certain cases but i i don't think that's the the right methodology is just to take all that for granted 
um, as as the foundation and say, well, if something coheres with those intuitions, then it's right. I mean, I think the whole point of objectivism, in a sense, is it's challenging the grounding of those intuitions. Right. So I think the the problem here is going to be that I at least have some methodology on which there's a reason for my theory to be appealing. But I don't think you've presented any coherent methodology as to why your theory would be appealing other than appealing to the theory itself. So you can't independently justify the theory based on any sort of methodology. But furthermore, I think that you, you do have to appeal to some extent to some sort of intuition, because if you don't appeal to intuition, then I'll just ask in virtue of what is pain bad and pleasure good? What's the contradiction of me holding the opposite that we should just maximize pain and minimize pleasure? Well, I think maybe what your question amounts to there is, you know, why should I regard pleasure as good and pain as bad? And that's where I think it's just self-evident and there's nothing I can say. If 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 you don't see that pleasure is a good thing, whereas I think uh, the concept of good is grounded on pleasure, then um, I don't think I, I I can say anything. I don't know that, uh, yeah, there's there's any basis for discussion if you don't recognize pleasure as good and pain as bad, right. at least so, in some sense. I mean, we can agree that like short-term pain or short-term pleasure, if I only consider what's going to happen in the short term uh, without regard for the long-run consequences, um, uh, I mean, I think you should regard have regard for long term consequences. But if you if you really just like pleasure in general, whether it's short term or long term, I just have no reason or no understanding of all as as why as to why you would say that's good. Well, I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know what to say at that point. So it sounds like the way that you're establishing that pleasure is good is that you have this belief that pleasure is good. But there's no logical derivation for it, right? You can't show a contradiction. I don't think I'm really yeah. establishing that it's good. I think it's more like I'm observing that it's good. Right, right. But I'll just ask you, how do you observe it? And it seems that the, now you might not want to call it intuition, right? But whatever method you have to observe it is going to be a method that, that does not require empirical evidence, right? Because it's not like um, there's any way of studying reality such that you'll come to the conclusion that evidence, that uh, pleasure is good. It's also not based on some type of formal logic because there's no contradiction with the opposite. So that just sounds to me a lot like an intuition. An intuition is some sort of belief that we come to or some sort of attitude that we come to on the basis neither of, of um, sort of abstract reasoning nor of empirical support. So I'll ask again. Well, the empirical support part I would disagree with. I, I, I don't think it's a result of abstract reasoning that you get to the idea that pleasure is good. But I would say there is empirical support and you just directly experience it as good. I don't think it's a conclusion of an argument that it's good. I think you just experience it as good. I was just thinking the other day that maybe the phrase uh, tastes good kind of embodies this, this idea you, you know, you eat something and you say, this tastes good. It's, it's you're experiencing it as good. It's not a conclusion you come to. Right. So, uh, so I, again, I think that that's, um, so that's not clear to me at all because are you, unless you deny the is odd gap, it seems that just observing sort of facts about our reactions to things are not going to be able to tell us about the 
normative aspects of those things unless we have some sort of premise like that what we intuitively have a reaction to is going to be an input into our moral theory, right? So again, um, I don't know what you mean by you just observe pleasure is good. I think that uh, whatever concept you're describing there is just going to be what I mean by intuition. And I don't know what the difference there is. You might say that it's a more basic and more fundamental intuition than uh, sort of socially developed intuitions. That's fine. But either way, it seems that it's going to be intuitive in the same way that I think um, like maximizing other people's utility is intuitive. Okay. Um, couple things. One is I, maybe a, um, well, I said you observe pleasure to be good. I think maybe another formulation, which I think I've also used, is that you experience it as good. I don't know that there's a difference there, but anyways, maybe the latter is a, a better formulation. But anyway, I, I, I do think uh, that there is a difference between, and this is what I tried to get at with the infant example. There is a difference in experiencing pleasure and pain just in response to sensations even a worm i think could do that say a worm well i don't, I don't know if worms have qualia or, or to use that uh, technical term uh, experiences more simply but let's suppose a worm um wriggles out of the sunlight because it's it's uncomfortable it's uh it doesn't like that it, it prefers a cool damp environment so it, it likes to it goes into the mud or something Maybe that worm experiences pleasure and pain, but this is a very primitive thing, which you don't need to be a human. I think, you know, many organisms who are much simpler than perhaps worms, uh, for example, can experience pleasure and pain, but there's no cognition going on. Um, but you're talking about cases which are, you know, way beyond what a worm or, or, or a frog or whatever the most simple organism that could experience pleasure and pain can do. You're talking about, you see the situation like um, you see someone drowning and you have the intuition that it would be good to save uh, th this drowning person and, and bad not to. I think that is way more advanced cognitively than the intuition that uh, sensory pleasure is good and sensory pain is bad. Um, so I think you're, you're packaging, you're making a package deal of things which are separate. So you're putting into one package, these very simple experiences in response to like sensory stimulation with things that involve some larger context and evaluating what's going on in different agents and what conditions they're in. Um, so I, I think there's 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 a package deal going on there. And, and I think that's a problem. You're, you're trying to put an epistemological equivalence between two things, which I think are different, and you're calling them both intuitions. So I, I think that's a mistake. Okay, I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, so okay. then do I take your view that you think that more experientially simple concepts are ones that we should favor more in developing a moral theory? I think as the foundation of its... Um, perhaps that's right. I, I do think, I mean, you need to eventually um, develop more advanced concepts, but if we're just talking about the, the foundation, the ethics, the axioms of ethics, we might call it, or axioms of normativity, something like that. I think there you want to go as simple as possible 
And I think uh, if you're doing that, you, you end up with uh, pleasure and pain as your most simple uh, foundation. Okay, absolutely. I'm committed to the same position. But we recognize that there are lots of life forms which experience pleasure and pain, but don't have a sense of self. So surely then you'll agree that um, pleasure and pain, just being positive, simpliciter, is a more simple concept or a more experientially simple concept than pleasure and pain being positive only when they are for yourself. Well, here, I think there's another. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit wary of this, this idea of they have no concept of themselves. I think that the concept of self maybe is uh, more complicated. Maybe there's some shades of gray here. Like cl clearly an infant doesn't have a concept of itself in a way that an adult does. But I don't think that licenses the move from, well, there's just nothing at all um, self-related in the uh, experience it has of pleasure or that I, I think, I, I don't know that I, you're somehow like taking out the agents uh, in a way that I, I think is somehow illicit here. And then you're trying to use that to build this idea, this utilitarian idea that there's no reason we should prefer um, one agent's pleasure over another. Um, so I, I don't think I'm yeah. doing anything illicit here, right? So first of all, what I mean by having a sense of self is seeing oneself as an object, right? So normally when we go through life, we probably see ourselves as subjects. We sort of see the world through our own eyes. But then occasionally, particularly developed animals like adult humans, will be able to think back about the fact that I am my own person and then imagine myself as an object in the world. Very early infants probably can't do this according to our best evidence. And some animals can't do this according to our best evidence. So... Again, if what we're talking about is experiential simplicity, then it seems that the experience that that I cannot even construct the experience X is good for me because I don't see me as an object. And, but for me requires I see myself as an object, right? So in that case, that's not going to work. Now, again, if you're going to appeal to the fact that what they're actually doing is they're actually experiencing their own pleasure, then again, I'm going to appeal to the idea that what they're actually doing is they're experiencing their pleasure right now. So either way, this dialectically is not going to help you. And I think that um, probably you'll just have to appeal to another argument than about what a simpler conceptual experience is, because clearly pleasure simpliciter being good is simpler than pleasure for me being good. Well, he, so one, one thought I had as you were saying that is maybe you're, there's a distinction between, between the implicit and the explicit. And it sounded like maybe what was going on is you're thinking that there has to be some kind of explicit awareness uh, that the pleasure they have is their pleasure, but, but there's not this explicit awareness. Um, and so therefore that not really the foundation or some egoistic view can't be the foundation of their, their view, but maybe what's going on there is just, they have an implicit sense uh, that it's their own pleasure that matters. And I would say that's what one should uh, build one's um, ethics on. But right. uh, And as for the point that 
right now what matters that also came up before and i said well in a sense yeah that's right but you learn that your your pleasure right now is affected by other things you do and um you learn there are longer consequences you have to take into consideration in order to have the best pleasure right now so i don't think the fact that you start out with uh the idea that your pleasure right now is what matters is going to lead you to some whim worshiping hedonism where you're acting irrespective of long-run consequences right so yeah i think that we're looping slightly here so maybe i'll repeat this response one more time and if you don't think you have anything new to say then we can do a quick closing but to be clear again i'm saying that either you can take it that what matters is what you explicitly believe right what you explicitly conceptualize and in that case what you explicitly conceptualize as the simplest building block is that pleasure matters simpliciter Now, if what you're taking is what you implicitly conceptualize, that is to say what's actually going on rather than what one thinks is going on. I don't think you get that even explicitly, just to interrupt on that point. Yeah, so if you're, yeah, I I wouldn't say either explicitly or implicitly there's any basis for the idea that just pleasure matters simpliciter, irrespective of an agent. But you do take it that very basic life forms that have some quality are able to think, that pleasure is good, right? Well, they're able to experience. I think I would yeah, they're able, put it that way they're rather able to than experience pleasure think. is good. Yeah. Yeah. But you agree yeah. that they can't experience themselves because they don't have a sense of self. Well, I I think that might be a little too quick. I mean, well, I think the issue maybe is just in. If you want to do an experience the... that's implicit in ex- any experience at all, um, is that it's your experience. Right. That's why I talked about. You the... don't get that explicitly. That's why but, I talked um... about the implicit ex- explicit distinction, because we agree that explicitly they can't think that pleasure is good for them. Right. So you'll make the appeal that implicitly they must be thinking that. But that's not right, because implicitly they're taking that experience that pleasure for them is good right now but you want to take out that right now part. So either way, you're either going to be committed to the position that utilitarianism is right on the explicit picture or on the implicit picture, you're going to be committed to the view that current utilitarianism is all that matters. Uh, Sorry, that current self-interest is all that matters, but you don't want to hold that view either. But I don't see any route to getting that your own interest matters, but over time. Okay, yeah, I I don't know that I have anything more I mean, I feel like I've, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I have any more to say on this. So maybe this is a case where <laughs> it's better to like put it in writing or something. And maybe that would be an easier way to sort out the fine grained details. But going back orally like this, I, yeah, I think we might just be looping at this point. So maybe it's better just to um, uh, move on from this. Sure. Okay. Um, and then, then I think we can talk briefly about another objection I wanted to press. So even if I agree with the the whole Randian picture of ethics, it's not clear to me why how that results in the sort of property rights that Rand wants to advocate for, because it could be the case that I shouldn't commit violence against anybody. But what that means is that I shouldn't commit violence against poor people by refusing to give them money, right? Um, or by refusing to let them have the money that they're morally entitled to, I should say. So under what picture do you, and how do you go from the simple Randian ethical picture to the sort of uh, minimalist government, maximalist capitalist freedom picture that Rand wants to espouse? 
Okay. Uh, this is uh, this is reminding me of some. I, I listened to some of your content, and um, are, are you uh, coming from G, a G. A. Cohen kind of perspective? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you know Cohen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I haven't um, read him myself, but I've heard uh, some other uh, mouthy infidel and Ben Burgess. They also um, appeal to this sort of idea that. Um, uh, well, you can't really call it coercion because um, what I would call coercion, or at least it begs the question, because maybe that person has a right to what you're claiming. Um, so, so I think uh, that's maybe I should address that. So I think uh, maybe your objection here is founded on a uh, moral premise, which I don't accept, and that's the root of the disagreements. I think this also came up in your discussion with Liquid Zulu. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Right. So um, I think to to address this sort of issue, which I guess more fundamentally <laughs> rests on the issue we've already been talking about. So, uh, but, you know, insofar as we can set aside that this prior discussion, um, I, I think I would want to... Uh, have a discussion about, well, what is the foundation of rights? How do we determine who owns what, who has a right to what? And I think that's going to be based on our ethical views. So if we don't agree on our ethical views, you know, me being an egoist and you being a utilitarian, then I think ultimately there's not going to be a way for me to convince you of the uh, political system I support because it does rest on an ethical foundation of so, egoism. So for this discussion, so, I'm, I'm happy yeah. to grant you that egoism is right. So let's just assume okay. that we're both starting from the premise that egoism is right. I still don't think that you're going to be able to show that capitalist property relations are right. Um, and I'm interested in what evidence or arguments you have for that position. Okay. So the um, we need to have a, a way to interact with other people if we're going to live in society as opposed to alone on a desert island, for instance. Uh, we need to have a, or even if we're on a desert island, but, you know, someone else comes onto the island, there's now a question, well, how am I going to re- relate to this other person? Um, is it in my best interest to make a slave out of that person or is it in my best interest to have a trading relationship with the other person? Maybe they, they, uh, they're good at carpentry or something so they can build a shelter, uh, out of tree, tree branches or something. And I can work on fishing cause I'm good at fishing and then I can trade my fish for some of their shelter and they could trade some of their shelter for some of my fish. And then, we can be better off together as traders uh, than either of us would be alone because we have specialized skills, let's say. Um, right. Yeah. So, so there, I, I, there might be yeah. one example where um, these sorts of property relations are going to work. But if we imagine a slightly different picture where I wash up on shore and somebody has already hunted and built a hut and is living quite well, then it's clearly in assuming that I have the physical power to kill them and 
they're not going to give me any of their stuff. It's clearly in my interests to kill them if they refuse to trade with me otherwise, right? So this way you can get pretty clearly anti, um, anti-capitalist property relations results from just straightforwardly applying objectivist ethical beliefs. Well, this might be analogous to the psychopath case uh, because what you might be raising is an emergency situation. Uh, Ayn Rand has an article called The Ethics of Emergencies where she discusses cases like this, or lifeboat cases sometimes are called. Like, what if you're on a lifeboat that can only hold one person, but there are two people on it? Uh, should, you know, should you throw the other person overboard to save yourself? Um, uh, you would be justified in throwing the other person over the overboard to save yourself, and on her view, on her ethical system. Now, is that a violation of her non-initiation of force principle that you shouldn't coerce other people? No, because that's that principle, the context for the application of that principle is normal society where you can have a long range existence where you're not in, a, in an emergency. So just like um, ethics is not meant for psychopaths, the non-initiation of force principle is not meant for emergencies. So I think... Um, it's uh, it's not a it's it's kind of taking the principle out of context and trying to apply it and it doesn't work. So if you're in a, an emergency case where the only way for you to live is by um, taking someone else's stuff, stealing a loaf, loaf of bread, say you're Robinson Crusoe, you finally make it back to civilization and you're going to die if you don't eat something in an hour, um, you would be perfectly morally justified on Rand's view in uh, stealing someone's food. Now she might add that um, you should pay the person back later once you're on your footing. You're on. You can stand on your own two feet again, and you're not in uh, immediate need. Um, or maybe the person would just recognize, okay, I understand you were in this emergency, so I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to press charges and take you to court. But the point of the non-initiation of force principle is how should we conduct society in a normal situation where we're going to have an ongoing uh, relation to other people. If that's the scenario, then I think it's more clear that the best way to relate to other people is non-coercively in a voluntary way. That's going to be mutually beneficial to right. everyone in the society. Okay, so that that's definitely unclear to me because if okay. you're if you're willing to say if what we're talking about is what actually is best for somebody in the average case, then I think for most people, other than maybe very few billionaires in today's society, the sort of current setup of welfare and taxes, it makes their life better off than the alternative scenario of the super strict uh, non-aggression principle style life where rich people aren't forced in any way to give money to poor people. And that's going to be an empirical claim about what's better off for the average person. So is there any argument that the average person would be better off in the alternative Ayn Randian system rather than a social democratic or socialist one? Yeah, there are arguments. And maybe I should have said before, not that it's, I think, I said, I think it's clear that um, it's better if people in a normal non-emergency case interact voluntarily rather than coercively. Um, maybe I should have just said it's true. I think it's true rather than that it's clear. I recognize other people. Uh, like yourself, uh, aren't going to think that's clear. But I think that's that's part of the um, the challenge that I am taking on is trying to convince people of that. So let me see if I can um, say some things about what it's what's best for the average person. 
for in well for another thing is I, I don't think it's there's really some dichotomy like there's two classes of people there's average people and non-average people like billionaires i think fundamentally you know setting aside psychopaths um if there are you know any such people um which you know, maybe there are but anyways i don't think they're relevant here i think it's in everyone's interest <clears throat> every normal person's interests uh to respect other people's rights and not coerce i don't think wealth inequality per se is a problem uh so if someone becomes a billionaire uh it could be that they were so productive that they earned that fortune you know they they made jeff bezos he created this with the help of others i know socialists will jump in it wasn't all himself he had the workers of course but the ceo plays a role a big role and i think the most uh fundamental role in his company he makes the most important long-range decisions so that's why he gets compensated the most. Whereas, you know, you go down the corporate structure, you become more and more easily replaceable by other people because the skill set required to do the job, once you get down to something like the janitor, is so easy that anyone can easily be swapped in to do that. Where it's very, it's very hard to find people to uh, run a, you know, humongous international corporation. So that's why they get paid more. Um, but be, they benefit people massively. Um, through the products and services they create. Uh, so many people around the world benefit from Amazon and Jeff Bezos, he gets a big chunk of the benefit. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think he's benefited people. He's not, uh, he's not living at other people's expense. He's not a parasite on, on others as socialists would have you believe he's a benefactor right. to us so, other people. Yeah. So, right? I mean, I, uh, I think that the more substantive question isn't one of how angry or not I am at Jeff Bezos. Personally, I'm not that angry. Um, but the more substantive question is, for lots of people, is a Randian capitalist system better than a social democratic one? And I can think of lots of people who it's not better for. So for example, elderly people. Elderly people on things like Social Security and Medicaid are probably much better off than they would be in a system where there is no government support and they can't work to earn a living. So how would those people benefit? And if you think they would benefit, do you have any demonstration empirically for how those people would be better off if it weren't for Social Security and Medicaid? Well, I think uh, you're better off if you get to keep the money that you earn rather than your money being forcibly taken away from you and given to someone else who didn't earn that money. I think that's pretty clear. And I think uh, Social Security and Medicare, they're Ponzi schemes, I guess that's the term, where you're taking from the younger generation and giving to the older generation uh, with the hopes that the generation behind you is going to be coerced into supporting you once you get old. Now, I, I think that whole system is corrupt and immoral. I think it's wrong to force one person to support another. I think it's your own responsibility to provide for your own retirement. Uh, and it's, I mean, if, if some people fail to do that, if they're irresponsible, if they're not taking their own long run existence into account in their choices and actions, I think that's their problem and they need to suffer the consequences. They shouldn't, no one else should be forced to pay for their irrationality. 
if yeah. they're going to be win more shipping so, and just you know spend away all their money. Yeah. Right. So right now you're not. A, <clears throat> you might be appealing to some sort of common sense moral principles about what people ought or ought not do to prepare for their future lives. But pretty transparently, for people who are already old now and who are no longer paying more into Social Security than they are getting out, Social Security makes their life better. And so from Ayn Rand's view, they, uh, from Ayn Rand's view, even for a fairly large portion of the population, they should be against Randian capitalism and for social democracy, right? I, I'm not sure I followed that, but if if you're getting at the issue of you know, what should be done now? I don't think it, it's uh, it's best to immediately abolish Social Security. I think it should be phased out. So people who all their lives have been working and having their money coercively taken away from them, um, now all of a sudden they hit retirements and they don't get any of that money back. Um, I, I don't think that's right. But I think what we should do is try to phase the system out and get away from this system where we are parasitizing one generation to subsidize some other generation um, but if we're like in midstream here, it's uh, that's another question of how do we get out of the system? That's not that's not the issue. I'm talking about right? the system in the first place is wrong. Right. So the issue is: is Social Security actually a good thing? And you you recognize, I assume, that at least for the people who are currently beneficiaries of Social Security, it is a good thing, even under Ayn Rand's view, right? Uh, may maybe. I mean, it might depend. It might vary from person to person. Like if. If you had, um, I don't know what the options are. Like if, if you have to uh, wait a certain amount of time, like I guess some people are getting monthly checks. Right, that's from the, the government system. Uh, okay, yeah. So, but if you could somehow, I don't know, opt out and, and invest the money instead of... You, there's no I, I don't know. You I think there might the be anymore. other... What's that? So the way it works is that you sign up to start accepting money and if you decide not to accept the money, you just don't get money. It's not like you get the money in a lump sum payment or something, right? So the, it's either you accept the current way Social Security works or you just don't get money. And so for those people, pretty obviously, the sort of welfare state that for many of them keeps them out of poverty is a good thing, right? Um, I mean, maybe. I'm not sure about that. There might be some exceptions at least maybe i'm trying to think like is there any i mean if you're a billionaire let's say and you uh forego your your right to the um social security money you could get is that um really against your self-interest maybe you, you would think ah, it doesn't really matter to me it's so small I, i'm better off uh, just letting other people maybe distribute it uh, to some other people instead uh i would maybe i would be happier as a billionaire having that happen right. but maybe that's a rare case sure okay so then granting that uh, we can talk about broad, broader scale phenomena because um let's say that there's let's say for the sake of argument that there was some good empirical evidence that an increase in government spending increased the average economic growth and increased the average living standard of most people it seems then that for most people, from Ayn Rand's point of view, the sort of welfare state that she's often so much against is actually a good thing, and so would be supported by her philosophy, right? Well, if you're, 
I mean, it has to be good for the individual. It has to be egoistic. So if you, I don't know if you're kind of importing a collectivist. Uh, I'm assuming, or, I'm like, assuming that there, let's say that the welfare state increases economic growth. And so for each okay, individual. Is for, it increasing over, economic growth for the people whose wealth is being coercively taken away? Okay. No, no it's increasing economic growth overall in the economy, which means that, okay. for, well, we'll say that but for, wait, wait, sorry, it, one second. For a majority right. of people, for a majority of people, it makes them better off than they would be otherwise. Now, there are some people who would be worse off, right? But for the majority of people, from Ayn Rand's view, they are correctly supporting the welfare state uh, in the most moral way, right? I don't think so, because I, I think if you, if you take that sort of approach, you're you're not taking a long run view of things. You're not taking a principled view of things. Sure, you can, you might be able to get more money in your bank accounts in the short run if you loot somebody. I mean, if I'm a mugger on the street, do I can make myself richer by mugging someone. Does that mean it's in my interest to go around mugging people? I, I don't think it is. Well, I think it's, so, and I think it's analogous to what you're talking about. It's What's, like systematic large-scale mugging. Right. So I think that's bad for society. The, the problem way. the problem is that you're making a very strong empirical claim there that across the course of lots of people's lives, the welfare state is on average going to be worse for them individually. But that's not clear at all. In fact, I think that to some extent, literature leans the other way in terms of economic growth. So I'm going to, I, I would need an argument um, beyond just some sort of intuition pump that shows that actually the welfare state has a negative effect on many people. Yeah. Uh, so one thought in this is I'm sure there's plenty of studies by socialist leaning or left leaning economists that would establish things like people are better off. But I, I think a lot of the studies that are done is just bogus and, um, I'm sure if I looked into them, which I haven't, I would have plenty of objections, but I, I, I don't doubt they're they're coming from things that, from, they're looking at things through a socialist kind of lens. And Yaron Brook, who he's also, he's an objectivist and he's got a, a podcast. He, he He's more familiar with the actual data, economic data and studies and this sort of thing. But I, I, I think there's there's reason to be skeptical uh, just apart from having looked at any studies. Um, so, I mean, just w what can I say as someone who's, you know, not looked at studies, but is just more of a philosopher and has thought about these things. And I have knowledge of history. Um, <clears throat> I've read a lot of history. Um, so I think if, if you know that you're living as a parasite on other people, I think that's, that's uh at least in my case and we can see whether this you know extrapolates to other people's cases that would bother me i want to be self-supporting i don't want to be a parasite on others i think it's unjust and immoral for me to uh coerce someone else to support me so that would um be a hit on my self-esteem right there knowing that um you know i'm i'm a parasite I'm a coercive parasite on somebody else. So I think right there, that's the reason to think you're not well off so, or at least not as good off as you could be. Right. So first of all, lots of, I think it's pretty clear that most people prefer to be on welfare than the opposite because for many welfare programs, you can just either 
not accept the money or once you accept the money, not spend the money. So if people really did feel like it was net hurting their lives, then they probably would not be using welfare the way they are now. But I'm not even sure that most people on welfare are parasitic in the way that you think they are. For example, one major type of welfare that I think is a really good idea is unemployment insurance. And that's not for people who are going to spend their entire lives doing nothing. That's for people who are in between jobs at the moment and probably feel like they're going to be able to find fulfillment later on. They just need the financial support to get there. So it's it seems to me that in order to support the type of economic policy that you support, you have to make these very broad, unevidenced economic claims. But then if you don't have further evidence behind them, and in fact, it seems that there might be some evidence, even if you're doubtful of it, against them, then it seems that you shouldn't be making these claims in general. Well, I, I do think I have evidence, uh, some of it introspective. I, I just I uh, think about how I myself feel in my own life if I'm living as a parasite on somebody else, as a dependent on somebody else. And not only that, but forcing them to be my host. It's one thing for someone like to be a uh, uh, a worthless heir, right? You're a playboy and you your parents make a fortune and then they just give it all to you. It's another thing to force other people to, to, to allow you to be their, uh, their host or to be a parasite on them. Um, I mean, just think about that in your own life. How does it make you feel to, to force other people? Uh, I, I think it's, I get a sense of self-esteem from being independent and supporting myself. So it's, it's not uh, lacking evidence in my own case. I have reason. It's not just some arbitrary decision. Oh, I want to support myself rather than be independent rather than be a parasite. No, it feels good to be able to support myself and to be independent. Right. So that might so, be true in yeah. your case, but there are plenty of people that's not true for. So for example, uh, I'm a university student at a school that receives a great deal of federal funding. And I don't feel like a parasite at all. In fact, I feel like this is a good thing. It's helping me contribute to my education. And later on, I'll be able to contribute more to society as a result. And even if you don't buy my one anecdote versus your one anecdote, it seems that there are lots of people who are on welfare, who are in a position to just say no to welfare if they really feel like it's negatively affecting their quality of life. But really, I think that either way, um, you should just be very hesitant to make these broad scale political prescriptions off of the internal analysis that only you have made as a person when there are these sorts of broader phenomena that you can look at. And so I would, if not retract making these sorts of political prescriptions, at least be a lot more careful and a lot less broad when saying what types of social policies we should support or economic policies you should support without broader evidence. Okay, so getting to broader evidence, uh, it's it's not only my own experience of the world, it's also history. So I think if we look historically, uh, what places have done the best? Economically, I think U.S. Uh, is done phenomenally well, maybe the best if we're considering all of world history. And that's also been the country that has most closely implemented the sort of political philosophy that I advocate of free markets and non-coercion wasn't perfect, but uh, it's, I think it's done the best and it's become the richest country in the world. And I think other countries to the extent they have implemented the kind of free market 
freedom principles that I advocate have also done the best. So it's not just my private experience in life. I think it integrates with the, a vast sweep of historical data. So if what we're interested in, um, as you know, we talked about at the very beginning about what makes people have the most pleasure, right? Then I think we should look at things like happiness self-reporting. And there, the Nordic, the Nordic countries tend to by far do the best, and they engage greatly in welfare mm -hmm. states. Also, I mean, you might say that the U.S. in large part has adopted the sort of welfare state policy, has a minimal welfare state compared to other developed countries, but it still has a very substantive welfare state compared to lots of other countries like Somalia, for example. So you still don't have evidence that even less welfare state or no welfare state at all is going to make society better. And in fact, I think we have some evidence to the contrary. Okay, so on the Nordic countries, Jaron Brook, who I mentioned a little while ago, has a video on that. And he discusses the so-called happiness studies. And I, I, I recall from his episode that what is meant by happy happiness in those studies is something like lack of uh, anxiety or something. It's not really a robust, positive notion. It's more the, some absence of a negative. So I think if you dig into these studies, this kind of integrates with a point I, I made a little while ago about my skepticism of a lot of uh, studies in the social sciences. I, I think a lot of it is junk um, and it's based on flawed premises there's been these so-called grievance studies that are just hoaxes, yet they get published in peer-reviewed places. Um, I think that the social sciences compared to the physical sciences are in a very primitive backward state. So I put very little weight, especially on, you know, issues that are politically charged. Um, I put very little weight on a lot of the uh, so-called uh, studies that come out of the social sciences these days. Um, as for U.S. welfare, yeah, we do have a welfare in the U.S. system, and I think things have gotten worse uh, since it's been implemented. I think there's been uh, stagnation. I think in the, the 19th century, there was tremendous growth in the late 19th century in particular. I think that might, it may have been the closest period in U.S. history um, to the kind of uh, system I advocate is also the, the, the freest system. And there were millions of people immigrating here. Um, and that's been, uh, we've gotten away from that in the 20th century. The, the growth of the state has slowed down the progress with all the uh, increase in taxes and regulations. I think we have uh, too little immigration to the United States. It's much too hard for people to come here. Than, uh, so I think things have gotten worse. I mean, the fact that we have welfare today, um, I, I don't think that's, that negates the, my my general point that the U.S. in in general has been an example of when you do implement these principles, uh, things go well. Yeah, so you're welcome to be doubtful of the studies that I cite, but the issue here is that, as far as I can tell, you have literally no evidence that the U.S. is happier than these other countries. So I think that we should at least in in terms of leaning lean towards the some limited evidence that we have that other countries are happy compared to the no evidence at all that the U.S. is particularly happy. Now, second of all, on this point about whether or not uh, the U.S.'s early 1900s experiences give us good reason to doubt welfare, I don't think that that's clear at all. I mean, first of all, we don't have good evidence. We have even, we have even less evidence that people in the 1900s are particularly happy. But also, 
I think that if you're suspicious of these sort of academic 1800s. studies, okay, in the in the uh, late 1800s, then I think we don't have any evidence that those people were particularly happy. And even if it's the case that um, we do have evidence that those people were happy, I think that if you're against these sort of data, um, if you're against the sort of academic analysis of data, you should be even more against these sorts of uh, causal stories that just look at two variables over time and assume without any control, without any further evidence, without any causal story, that one is causing the other, right? I think there are lots of reasons that could we could imagine that the US was growing much faster in the 1800s. For example, industrialization, right? Um, so I, I would not buy such a simplistic story. And I think these are the cases where we should look at the evidence, we should look at the studies, and those are going to come down on my side nine times out of 10. Okay, there was a lot there. <laughs> So first of all, uh, the, you made a point about there's no evidence that the U.S. is uh, happier than than other places. Uh, well, for one thing, Disneyland is in the U.S. and Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. But I joking aside, uh, joking aside, I, I mean, it, but but I do think there's there's something there. I mean, I think it's reflective of the the culture at large. I mean, I think. Uh, it's a culture of happiness in, in a way. I mean, it's in our founding documents that in this country, you have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that, that was unprecedented historically that individuals would be regarded as having those rights. But, you know, other things, immigration, where do people immigrate? I think uh, there are so many people who would love to come to the U.S. as opposed to leave to the U.S. I mean, if you had an open immigration policy, where would people move? I, I think it's people voting with their feet are, uh, I think there's uh, evidence that uh, a lot of people would come to the United States. A lot of people are trying to at the risk of their lives. People, you know, they don't they swim in shark infested waters from Cuba to get to the United States? Don't they try to cross the desert and risk death down in Mexico to try to get uh, to the United States knowing that they might get turned away and you know they might try again even if they're deported they might try again to get back in um so i think immigration we, we could find some evidence there in immigration patterns as to where people are happier and would prefer to live uh art i think could be another example of the uh, uh, evidence of people's interstate do we have uh positive benevolence a glorifying uh, life art, or do we have anxiety written Edward Munch's The Scream kind of art where it, it's uh, concretizing the sense of panic? I think in the, in the 19th century, we started to see romantic uh, art develop, which I think uh, conveyed a kind of positive, glorious sense of life. Um, and we had more anxiety, Jackson Pollock painting smears everywhere, disintegrating universe. We see more of that sort of art appear in the 20th century as uh, government totalitarian states began to arise around the world. So I think that could provide some evidence of uh, when people's mental state is in a better condition. Uh, you made some other points, but I'll pause for there. Sure. Pause there for now. Okay, so um, two things. First of all, I think that that's 
that the point about immigration is at best going to be pretty symmetric between the Nordic countries and the U.S. If you look at the stock of the population that's foreign-born in the Nordic countries, in Norway, for example, I think it's something like 19%. So it's also a pretty high portion of the population in these Nordic countries that move there because they think there will be a better life. And I don't think that that's a reason to favor the U.S. Second of all, on this point about art, I think that that's not going to be convincing for your argument. First of all, I think that there are lots of other things that affect art, right? Like importantly, artistic trends, for example, affect art a huge amount. But also, I I don't think it's fair to restrict it to certain types of art. Like if we look at early 2010s pop music, that tends to be a huge amount about partying and having a good time. So at least in that case, it seems that 2010s pop music is an example of people being really happy with the current age. And if you take art to be a strong indicator of social happiness, then that must mean that the 2010s are a particularly happy time. Well, I don't know that if you have uh, party music, electronic dance music, or I'm not sure what your examples are. I don't think that necessarily implies uh, a culture of happiness. I mean, it could be uh, a very shallow, superficial kind of happiness, uh, or maybe I wouldn't call it happiness then, or a superficial, shallow kind of uh, pleasure. Uh, maybe maybe it doesn't I, I mean there's different grades of pleasure i mean you can have um more and less uh shallow kinds of pleasure and if it's just pop pop music um it it doesn't uh necessarily imply that uh these people are happy in some kind of deep enduring uh meaningful way it it's so i, I would say that about your last example you said some uh, things about the Nordic countries and the in their immigration patterns, but I, I didn't fully catch that. Um, I don't know if you want to uh, reiterate what you said there. Yeah, sure. The Nordic countries also have a huge amount of immigration into them. So it's not clear to me that um, the number of people immigrating uh, shows strongly that there's some reason that people uh, that the U.S. is much better than the Nordic countries. Well, I, I don't know that... I'm not necessarily claiming it is better. I mean, I would, but you also, there there are other factors we need to consider, like where are they moving from and what are their options? Like, I think U.S. immigration policy is much too closed. There are these quotas in terms of how many people from each country can move. So I don't know, maybe for many of these people who are moving to Scandinavian countries, they would move to U.S., but it's not an option perhaps because it's so difficult, the bureaucracy of it. Um, So I don't know, but I'm just saying in general, tons of people are trying to move to the United States and I'm not necessarily, um, I'm not saying this is the only factor, but I think looking at immigration, I mean, how many people are trying to immigrate to North Korea (laughs) or Cuba? Um, Maybe some people are, maybe you just love the, the mountain scenery in North Korea or something and, you're a mountain specialist or whatever, and you know there's one guy who wants to go there. But if you look at immigration patterns in general, I think it shows that a lot of people are trying to get to the United States. And it's not to say that no one wants to immigrate anywhere else, but I do think immigration is one factor to consider. That's fine. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure... I think that uh, perhaps um, we can discuss. Oh, this just a bit one more other thing on the um, on uh, Nordic countries. 
I think that um, they are less regulated in than the U.S. And that's been part of the reason that they've done as well as they have. So a lot of people point to them as examples of heavy government intervention um, doing well economically. But actually, in some ways, and Yaron Brook has talked about this. He knows more about this than I do. Um, so if people want to check out his videos, they might find it interesting. But I, he, he's he's made the point that they're actually less regulated than the United States countries. So they're not as uh, full of government intervention as some people might have been led to believe. Right. So regardless of regulation, which I think is, hey, I'm not sure that I'm in favor of heavy sort of individual regulations, right? But in terms of things I am in favor of, like social ownership, there's vastly more social ownership or vastly more co-ops in Finland, for example. Norway has a massive social wealth fund that owns a large portion of the economy. These types of things, Finland, Norway, Sweden, are clearly far and above further closer to the sort of social democratic or socialist ideals I hold to than the U.S.'s. Um, about the immigration, look, if you want to make some, if you want to make claims that maybe there are other reasons why a large portion of those populations are foreign-born or immigrants, that's fine. The point is just to say that if, if we want to explain away data, we can do that all day. I just don't think that there's a good case based on the immigration statistics either way about which country is more preferable. Well, I, I'm not saying uh, immigration alone, immigration patterns alone can decide which country is more preferable, but it's it's just one piece in, in a large mosaic of factors. Um, you, I mean, you were saying things about having a large social welfare fund in these Scandinavian countries, and I think that's right. I mean, I, I do think taxes are much higher over there. Again, I don't know the numbers, but from reliable sources, I, I've heard this and I don't doubt that, but I do have a question as to how sustainable that is. Another point I'm I'm recalling now, as I'm thinking back to some of these uh, videos I've watched about Scandinavian countries is that part of the reason they were able to have as large a of a social welfare fund as they do have is because they they earned a lot of money. They were very productive in certain periods of their history. They were able to create wealth, but now they're kind of uh, going into that stock of money they created, and they're they're using it for more social programs. But I would expect, given principles of um, philosophy, including political philosophy, that over time that's going to be uh, they're going to they're not going to be able to sustain that policy. And we might have an analog to that with things like Social Security and Medicare in the United States. Sure, for a while, uh, you can have programs like these, but over time, they become bankrupt and they become trillions of dollars in debt. And there becomes a crisis as to uh, what to do about them. And you know, now some people, they don't know if they're going to get any money some, from Social Security. So I think you can have these short-run schemes, Ponzi schemes, in order to get some short range benefits for certain segments of the population. But if you consider what's good for the health of the country, who is made up of individuals in the long run, I, I think it's going to be uh, that you don't have these coercive schemes. Yeah. So again, I think that um, there's a lot of conjecture here and I would be much more cautious at founding these very broad social prescriptions on these sorts of conjecture. So for example, 
if you want to make a conjectural statement that the reason these Nordic countries function fine at the moment is because of previous wealth, then you'd need evidence that that's actually the explanatory variable. But for example, in the last year, according to the World Bank, the United States had a 5.9% growth rate, while Sweden had a 5.1% growth rate, right? So it's not like um, somehow the United States is growing much faster than these other countries, which have stalled or broken economies. Next, if you're going to appeal to broader principles of political economy to say that these countries will collapse over time, I just don't think that's well demonstrated. I don't buy these principles of political economy, and I think that the actual empirical evidence that people have gathered about these has shown that to some extent certain certain types of social spending um, or a certain size of government that's greater than zero is actually helpful for the economy. So again, I think that there's a lot of conjecture and you haven't presented strong, convincing evidence that for the average person, uh, given Ayn Randian philosophy, the welfare state is going to be net negative on their life. Well, I don't think it's, uh, it's not just conjecture. I mean, I've been giving historical examples about, for instance, the U.S.'s tremendous growth in the period, maybe the most explosive period of growth in world history for a country occurred during the time of the U.S.'s history when it implemented the political principles that I'm talking about. So to, to paint this as just conjecture, I think is um, 180 degrees wrong. Uh, I mean, I think it belies the historical evidence to say that um, this is just based on conjecture. Like I just came out of <laughs> pie in the sky. I have the, there's no um, there's no historical data to back this up. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's uh, an accurate representation of what I've said, even in this conversation. Right. Well, to be clear, I think I responded to the historical examples and said that I didn't think that those were going to be particularly promising. But in general, by the way, industrialization, which you mentioned, I, I'm in favor of that. I do think that's uh, part of what helped the U United States succeed. But I think you, you are better able to industrialize when you have a free system. So that's part of my case. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no worries. So I think that, that that's not clear. Um, sorry, I think that even if it's the case that uh, like a free market system in general helps you industrialize, I think that it might be the case that either once you're industrialized, welfare helps a lot or that even in the process of industrialization, welfare helps, but you want a overall free market economy. Either way, I think that there's not good evidence in favor of your case. Um, and the reason that I accused you of a great deal of conjecture is that many of your replies or many of your arguments have been based on these sorts of empirical assumptions, like one that you just said, that uh, a free market is going to help you have a greater industrialization. I, I would need some empirical support. I think to be clear, the contrast isn't that you have your um, you have your explanatory stories and I have my explanatory stories. It's that you have your explanatory stories, but I have empirical evidence that I think is actually pretty straightforward. So, for example, if you're still looking at my video, I just linked in chat an article that doesn't use fancy statistical techniques, as far as I can tell, that are susceptible to bias. They just straightforwardly look at a panel of countries and see that um, for a medium-sized government. Uh, there's more likely to be growth than small governments or overly large governments. So examples like these are very straightforward analyses that seems to indicate the opposite of what you're saying, uh, and I think to great effect. Oh, I haven't seen the study. Maybe I'll take a look at it later. Um, 
But as I've said, I, I, I think a lot of the studies coming out of the social sciences fields are just, there's great reason to be skeptical about them compared to like the physical sciences. Um, and as, so going back to this point about conjecture, um, so maybe I can say something about the, the mechanism by which, why, why it is the countries that implement these principles tend to do the best uh, economically. Well, first there's a question as to whether you even accept that, because if you don't even accept that, then there's nothing to explain. <laughs> so the one claim is, do countries that are more free do, do better than countries that are less free? Another no, question is, I don't think so. if they do, why is that? So you don't even accept uh, the first claim. So I guess I don't know that there's even um, a, a reason to go into the explanation of it, which, yeah. which I was about to. So you don't even accept that countries that are more free have done better. And th this, how do we even, even determine what is better? Um, so we, we might have different views of how, how it's determined that a country is doing better. You, now you brought up before looking at something like happiness studies, which I think are probably bogus based on the sort of analysis that I've um, heard Jaron Brook give in one of his shows and my general skepticism about um, the state of psychology and social science studies. Um, so from my view, <laughs> you haven't given evidence that your, your, your system is uh, uh, better off for people. You've relied on these shady studies from shady disciplines that don't have a good track record. Um, so, so we we kind of have a mirror image of each each sure. other's uh, level of support of their view, which which is not really surprising. Yeah. So, um, first of all, I think that to be clear, the study that I linked, which I don't expect you to read now, but might be interesting to read at a later date, um, does not use fancy statistical techniques. It does not use systems, as far as I can tell, that could conceal the results. Rather, they use pretty straightforward analyses that I, as a layperson who doesn't study statistics, can understand. So I think that it's unreasonable to just accuse these of being biased if there's not even any clear way that they could be exhibiting bias. Um, second of all, I think that the difference between our positions is that whereas you might deny most empirical studies, even under your view, you have very little support because you have these sorts of historical just-so stories that, as we've discussed, if you look at things like immigration numbers, don't actually come out to be that positive. If you look at things like GDP growth numbers, don't actually come out to be that clearly on your side. On the other hand, under my view at least, where I do accept these sorts of empirical studies, they significantly change my credence in the effectiveness of policies. So under my view, I'm justified, whereas even under your view, I'm not sure that you have a clear justification for your position. Maybe... Um, why don't we do, you know, you say something, I say something, and then I'll give you the last word and we can leave it there because I, I do have something coming up that I, I should get to. Okay. Uh, so <clears throat> these studies you, you mentioned, uh, one of which you linked, um, you said it doesn't have much in the way of sophisticated statistics going on, but I think there are also just philosophical presuppositions that go into studies like this happiness study that I mentioned their conception of what it means to be happy uh, could be way off. Like if you just mean by happiness, lack of anxiety or something like that. Well, I don't think that's what happiness means. That's not going to 
be what I'm measuring for when I'm measuring something like happiness. So there's a lot that goes into studies, some of which might be statistical, but other of which might be other things like philosophical assumptions or conceptualizations of certain terminology, um, which I probably also have lots of uh, issues with, given my general um, pro uh, skepticism about the state of many uh, social sciences as opposed to the physical sciences, which I think have done very well in producing technology like we're using right now all the electronics and uh, internet and so forth. I think physical sciences have done uh, very well. So I'm more, more likely to um, find those sorts of studies reliable. As to, um, let's see, what was the other part of, uh, you made one or two other points I was gonna respond to, but I don't remember what they were. You wanna briefly say if um, I omitted? uh i oh i just said that i think oh, oh i, I yeah. remembered i remembered um so i think the study that uh you linked i guess it was comparing the u.s uh to like in the last year it had 5.9 percent growth versus 5.1 or maybe it was the reverse with yeah. some scandinavian sweden country. had 5.1 percent and u.s had 5.9 percent okay yeah i i think this is um maybe focusing on the too small or narrow a scale compared to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the vast sweep of U.S. history, the 19th century, this period of tremendous growth across the decades, not just this little 0.8% difference over the last two years or last year between these two particular countries. I'm taking a much more, I'm looking at the forest, not just these two little trees. Um, so I think if we take this broader view, I think it's it's more clear. I mean, there's tons of things. I think the U.S. is doing way poorer than it should be doing at this stage, but there's also tons of government intervention. We've gotten very far away from the kind of principles that I advocate. So I'm not going to point to any study today that uh, the U.S. Uh, does worse than some other country and say, well, that's, i got to explain that away. Um, I, I'm not surprised, actually. If the, I think there's like freedom indexes or economic indexes I've heard where the U.S. ranks like maybe somewhere in the 20s behind other countries. And given all the, the regulations and taxes we have in this country, I'm not surprised. So I, I'm not arguing that the U.S. today is uh, better off than every other country. What I'm saying is more that if we apply the principles that the U.S. implemented more consistently in its earlier history, we would be better off. And I think there is evidence historical evidence to show that uh, countries grow best uh, when that happens. Okay, thank you. So um, I'll just make this my overall closing statement and then I'll give you the last word. Um, so overall, I think a quick sort of explanation of what's of my view of what's happened so far in the debate. So for those of us who haven't been here, for those of you who haven't been here the entire time, um, I think that we started off talking, we started off talking about the philosophical case um, for Ayn Rand's view of ethics. And the problem is that I think that you, you failed to provide. So we finally agreed that a good basis of an ethical theory is something like what is the simple, most basic conceptualization that, that we can have that's somehow normative. Um, and uh, I think that you failed to pr show either that the intrinsic case follows from Randianism because the intrinsic that Randianism follows from the intrinsic case because I think that the intrinsic 
uh, belief is going to be that utility is good now for myself, which is not Randian, or that in the intrinsic case, uh, utilitarianism, or that Randianism is going to follow in the extrinsic case, because extrinsically, many beings have sort of normative experiences without having any conception of self, so they would say that happiness is good simpliciter. So then we started talking about, okay, granting this sort of premise for Ayn Rand. Then do we get the sort of economic prescriptions that Rand makes? And I think that here we saw uh, a lot of, uh, a great failure of empirical support to substantiate the argument. First of all, um, I think I pretty clearly demonstrated that there's a significant portion of the population, namely average income social uh, security recipients for whom the welfare state is actually a net positive on their life. Then on a broader scale about whether social, whether whether the sort of economic policies that Rand supports are going to better or worsen the life of the average person, it's at least unclear, if not net negative, um, it's at least unclear, if not uh, the case leaning slightly against Randianism. I think that whereas I have a great body of empirical literature on my side that, uh, Dan, I think you reasonably reject, um, even if we look at these sort of individual records historically, it's unclear that your side's going to clearly win here. Because first of all, if we look at immigration, there are lots of immigrants to the US and there are lots of immigrants to Sweden and Norway. And if your only way of explaining away the lots of immigration to Sweden and Norway is some story that they would have immigrated to the US if they could, um, then that's not going to be very convincing because I could have just said the opposite about immigrating to the US and it's not clear who's in the right there. Next, if we talk about who had greater growth in the past, um, Again, I think that we reach a stage of conjecture here, because if we talk about the rate of growth in the U.S. in the 1800s, sure, that was greater than it is now, but that also coincided with industrialization. And the best that you can offer in this case is to say that, okay, well, actually, the reason that, there, that uh, this industrialization happened is the free market policies, so this is evidence for free market policies. But again, that's conjecture, because I don't accept that that's the case. I think that industrialization can happen quite effectively in mixed economies or economies with large welfare states. Last of all, I, I would like to say that I think that even in cases where there's straightforward statistical methods that just look at things like the correlation between the size of a government in terms of GDP and the size of growth in that country, um, in those cases, you see that there's an optimal size of government, which is not zero. In fact, it's well north of 10% of GDP. So for that reason, I think that we should reasonably ex accept results that are pretty straightforward, that I think are difficult to exaggerate or manipulate. And for, I think that those give very good reason to believe that we should continue taxation, we should continue a sort of social democratic model. Um, uh, and anyway, last words, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's been an enjoyable discussion. And um, yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll uh, let you have the floor. Okay. Uh, I, I also appreciate the opportunity. I, I uh, thought this was a good discussion. Uh, so let me make some closing remarks. Um, you've said a few times, well, you don't see how Randianism follows from such and such. First of all, I just want to say this is a very small discussion we're having. I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours. This is kind of just kind of like an advertisement, you might think, for a, a vast ocean of literature you could get into. So I, I'm not, uh, I have no uh, expectation that I'm going to um, convert somebody from socialism to uh, objectivism or even from uh, just uh, non-socialism, uh, average common sense uh, American 
who maybe is a Democrat or Republican, liberal, conservative, um, to objectivism in the course of a one or two hour conversation, I'm just addressing isolated uh, select points, select points that come up and trying to give you some uh, way that I look at them coming from Ayn Rand's perspective. And if some of these things sound interesting or maybe they challenge you in some way or other, you're not sure what to think about it, but maybe maybe something sounds interesting here. Well, hopefully uh, you'll look into it further, anyone who's listening to this, and see what else could be said about this. I mean, Ayn Rand has written uh, many books, uh, dozens and dozens of essays. Uh, so there's a whole world to discover. And um, this is just giving you a little glimpse. It's not meant to you know, change anybody's worldview. It's just uh, to give you a little glimpse of it. Now, to uh, address some of the other points you, you raised, I'm a little unclear on the extrinsic and intrinsic language you were using there. That didn't come up too much during that part of the discussion, but um, I'll just say I do think there is good reason to think that your own pleasure is what's worth pursuing, and that is the basis of the concept of good, and there's not, there's not uh, any empirical evidence to think that's just pleasure in the abstract, apart from any agent, apart from who whose pleasure it is, should matter to you. I think it's clear why your pleasure should matter to you, though. So I think there is a kind of axiomatic empirical foundation uh, for a, an ethics of egoism, uh, which is not the same as a whim-worshipping, do-whatever-you-feel-like-in-the-moment kind of ethics. I think it's clear that what is in your own interest is to consider the long-run consequences and if you do so, that's most likely to optimize your own happiness and well-being. As for uh, economics and which countries are better off, I think there is lots and lots of uh, empirical, historical evidence to support the view that a free market capitalist system such as existed in the late 19th century, that is the late 1800s, is, is a good system. And I wasn't saying that necessarily everyone would have, uh, choose to immigrate to the U.S. as opposed to freedom. My point about immigration was much more large scale. Again, looking at the forest, not just two trees, two countries, United States versus Sweden. Maybe today there is a net immigration towards Scandinavia or the U.S. I'm not sure. But either way, I don't think that affects the overall point. You look at the world, taking a world historical scale of view on this. Tons of people want to come to the United States. It's the happy. It's got the happiest place on earth, which I think is um, a a symptom of the the culture of America. It's the land where, in its founding document, you have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that says something, as does the art, uh, which we discussed some. And finally, I'll end on this point: uh, reason versus force. I think the mechanism that explains why. The countries that have the most freedom do the best, which you don't accept, but which maybe other people accept or might be at least intrigued by the idea that there's a correlation there between freedom and prosperity. The reason why that is, is because reason doesn't function under force. Galileo is a classic example of this. The church, under threat of force, house arrest, they say, you must recant. The The earth does not go around the sun. The sun goes around the earth. We have a geocentric universe um well if that if you're in that kind of some what kind of mind can innovate can be bold and daring and come up with new new ideas advance human knowledge and progress 
you can't. That kind of mind is stifled, and you get a slowing down of science, of, of development, of industrialization, of productivity. Things grind to a halt. The more you do restrict people's minds with coercion and the threats of force. And that's the explanation of why when you have freedom, reason can work its magic. And uh, we are the rational animal, as Aristotle said. Reason is our uh, distinctive fundamental trait. And as Ayn Rand said, it's our basic means of survival. It's not magic. It's our, uh, it's our survival mechanism. And when that survival mechanism is uh, thwarted through coercion, then it's not able to produce all the wonderful things like this uh, technology we're using right now to view this. When it is allowed to, f- uh, when it is allowed to uh, flourish and function, we can develop a a wonderful life life enhancing civilization. And I want more of that. I want flying cars. I think we could be f- much further along than we are right now if we did have more have more freedom. And if anyone wants to learn more about these ideas, I invite you to check out my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Dan Norton one. And uh, thank you again uh, for having me on this debate. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks.